All right. Well, welcome to the WeldCore Supply CAODC podcast for September 2019. I'm John Bako. We are very pleased to welcome WeldCore Supply as our title sponsor. WeldCore is a proud Canadian-owned welding filler metal supply company in a country that has the highest environmental and human rights standards in the world. WeldCore supports ethical oil and the Canadian oil and gas sector. You can find out more about WeldCore at weldcore.ca. So yes, we'd like to thank WeldCore very much for coming on board as our title sponsor. And as an industry, it's great to see more and more companies standing up against the backlash of misinformation surrounding the fossil fuel industry in Canada, because we still have a lot of hard work to do. Not too sure if you saw Jeffrey Morgan's article in the Financial Post a few weeks back, but he was sharing the news that several of the country's largest natural gas producers and drilling contractors could be at risk of being kicked off the TSX index. What that means, as Jeffrey explained, is their depressed market capitalizations have fallen to the point where they no longer meet the threshold required for the 239-member composite index managed by index provider S&P Global. So five years into this downturn, while many of the major oil and gas producing jurisdictions have recovered considerably since 2014, when consumer demand for oil is at 100 million barrels per day, when the price has been relatively stable between 50 and 65 US dollars per barrel, and we've had some swings in either direction, but it's been relatively stable, Canadian oil and gas companies are still struggling. Not being listed on the index, the TSX index, is definitely not the end of the world, but in terms of symbols, it's yet another indication that our industry is being hit hard. In fact, Danielle Smith had a couple of guests on her show a few weeks back from Animus Capital, describing how, in the same way large investment funds have been pressured into divesting from fossil fuel companies in their portfolios, that insurance companies are now being targeted and pressured to not underwrite fossil fuel infrastructure projects. When you begin to examine how the many facets of what is happening in oil and gas in Canada right now, or when you begin to examine the many facets of what is happening in oil and gas, it's truly fascinating, and it also makes the title of the book today's guest has written seem very accurate. Joining us for our interview segment is Terry Edom, oil field blogger and author of the book The End of Fossil Fuel Insanity. And when you really think about it, many of the things that have happened in Canada's oil and gas industry over the past several years could rightly be described as insane. Before that, however, let's get into our industry update segment, brought to you by the fine people at Crux Analytics. The Crux Industry Dataset provides you with the most accurate and up-to-date drilling information in Western Canada. For more information or to subscribe today, check out cruxanalytics.com. Okay, in August of this year, we were hovering around 30% utilization on the drilling side, which is about 160 active rigs out of a registered fleet of 548. For those who don't know, we describe an active rig as any rig that is moving or drilling, essentially any rig that is billing a customer rate. To give you an idea of where we are compared to our last relatively normal year, which was 2014, and that's a long time ago now, in 2014, the average uh, registered rig count was 809 through four quarters. 
In Q3 of 2014, we had an active rig count of 377 rigs. As far as jobs are concerned, at 135 direct or indirect jobs per rig, we are looking at a difference of 29,295 jobs from Q3 2014 numbers. That's a lot of oil field workers, and in downtown Calgary, where our offices are at, we certainly have seen the results firsthand. As far as operating days on the drilling side are concerned, in August of 2018, we had just over 6,000. This August, we will be sitting at just over 2,000. Again, to compare our last relatively normal year, in 2014, we had 11,825 operating days. In terms of basin, the Montney remains the most active right now with the Bakken in second place. Deep Basin and the Cardium round out third and fourth spots. And as we hit the middle of September, we've seen Alberta still has the most rigs running, but Saskatchewan and Ontario have the highest provincial utilization rates at 48 and 50% respectively. But keep in mind their rig counts are lower. And in fact, in Ontario, Ontario's is that high because according to our records, we only have two rigs listed in the province and one of those rigs is working. So <laughs> that's excellent. We've got a nice 50% uh, utilization rate there. On the service rig side, we are just getting the numbers for August 2019 finalized this week. We have data for about 90% of the fleet today, and our operating hours are totaling 86,119. August of 2018, we were sitting at 101,317 operating hours for a difference of 15,198. Again, going back to uh, 2014, in August, our service rig contractors had a total of 150,968 hours. So today we're running at about a 57% decrease in operating hours since 2014. And it's, you know, each year we, we go past 2014, we still have to, we still haven't had another relatively normal year to compare to. So 2014 remains the benchmark, unfortunately, and it's just getting further and further away from us now. So there is your monthly analytics summary brought to you by Crux Analytics. The Crux industry data set provides you with the most accurate and up-to-date drilling information in Western Canada. For more information or to subscribe today, check out cruxanalytics.com. All right, on to our very special guest. He's no stranger to anyone who appreciated Frank talk about Canada's oil and gas industry or who appreciates Frank Talk. He's been uh, actually on Danielle Smith for uh, the last couple of weeks running, which has been fantastic. Mr. Terry Edom is an energy writer with over 20 years in the business. His book, The End of Fossil Fuel Insanity, has garnered critical acclaim as an excellent analysis of the complex world of climate change and the world's demand for fossil fuels. He is a regular contributor to the BOE Report and his blog, Public Energy Number 1, has been read over a million times. Terry is a sought-after public speaker and was recently on a city TV panel for the upcoming federal election. He's a frequent industry subject matter expert on a variety of radio talk shows. Good morning, Terry, and welcome to the Weldcore Supply CAODC podcast. Hello, John. Thanks for having me. You're a very busy man, my friend. Uh, have I missed anything in the introduction there? Is there any... Uh... I'm trying to sleep a little bit in there, too. <laughs> for, for full disclosure, my uh, it's my combined blogs that have been read over a million times. Oh, okay. That's okay. Yeah. It's on the BOE, whatever. Yeah. So. Well, but that's fine. That's an old stat, too, so I don't even know what it is now. But, yeah, it's been well-received. 
terrific yeah and i know the articles uh, i mean i read you in the boe report a lot and uh yeah i mean every week you've got some some insight that uh i think just you know a lot of mainstream's not picking up the angles that you pick up and so it's really important in filling in the blanks uh. I, I i think so and a lot of it isn't rocket science what i say it's just pulling it together like you said there's um and maybe that's just a reflection of the industry the way it's been dormant for so long on that front i think the industry is for a long time been more worried about the regulatory side or dealing with the governments and public opinion hasn't mattered and and things like getting statistics out to people that um, they might be true but they just if they don't resonate they don't go anywhere so yeah that's all, all i've been trying to do is just trying to pull these things together and try and add a little bit of goofiness or whatever to make it readable for people right well, it's interesting you mentioned statistics because as I was just reading through the industry update there, you take a stat like 50% utilization, and that sounds great. But then you throw in, you know, it's one out of two rigs. Two rigs. Well, that's, that's not so good. It's not so good. No. But, you know, I mean, it just depends on what number you're using, right? Yeah, it does, and, yeah. And the angle that you're looking at the statistic from. So. And who, what sort of message you're trying to get across and to whom, I guess. So. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So, uh, last weekend, um, to start off with, and I know you were on uh, Danielle yesterday talking about the same thing, but uh, we, we kind of got a look at how susceptible our industry is to geopolitical events. I mean, it always has been, but uh, I guess it's been a while since something like this, or mm -hmm. might be even unprecedented in terms of... Uh, I, I think it was the largest outage ever. I saw an article that, that compared the statistics of, of the past events, including the Iran-Iraq war and that sort of thing, and this is, was the biggest for... Saudi Arabia says it's it's cleared up now, but in terms of barrels knocked offline, it was the largest. Yes. So I understand it's a complex situation, but what were your first impressions from uh, the event on Saturday? It was a bit what you had, you alluded to there that the world seems to have just kind of uh, they haven't been worried about oil supplies forever. There's been no risk premium on oil, which is something that used to be talked about weekly probably five or eight years ago or 10 years ago um, the risk premium was a significant um, component of the daily commentary and oil price swings and if something would happen in the middle east if someone would uh, there'd be a bad meeting or something in the press that didn't sound great between neighbors then uh, the, the price of oil would jump by five percent or something and then that just went away then no one seemed to care about it anymore i think part of that has been What's been really interesting is is that about this whole topic is that it's kind of related to the shale revolution in the U.S. because that's, as with the climate arguments, we see that certain messages just dominate the world uh, media. And the shale revolution is one of them. And everybody around the world knows what fracking is and they know what shale is and half of them know what the Permian is, which is really weird because um, they don't know the other big fields in the world. But uh, that's the, the dominant theme now is that the, we don't really need to worry about oil supplies because the U.S. can meet whatever needs we have. And I think that's been part of the reason that the risk premium has gone away, too. So this it, w it was like a wake-up call back to reality that, and, and maybe just pinpointed just how fragile supplies really are. Like if you, a bunch of clowns in the desert with some drones, obviously they had some, they were pretty well-connected clowns to have that kind of firepower, but that they can bring down 5 million barrels a day like that. And, and it's... I talk to people downtown in Calgary here too, like security experts, and, and they point out that um, bigger pipeline operators have uh, idiots climbing over fences and turning valves. 
that's not an infrequent occurrence and, and, and things could go very sideways with these people doing these sorts of things and it's getting more common, but they don't like to talk about it, of course, who would? Um, but, but there's the, the whole, the whole uh, uh, supply chain of petroleum is, is more fragile than people ever dream of. And, and it, unfortunately, we might find out the hard way one day in the dead of winter or something. Well, this is it. And, and given the timing, especially, you would think that um, these events would convince some politicians um, that a national strategic uh, supply security plan is important. But I haven't seen anyone. No, no, there's been a bit of chatter about it. And, and Kenny brought it up in New York and said, maybe you need to pay attention to where your petroleum comes from. Maybe you should value having a big friendly neighbor to the north with it's stable and it has huge reserves um so it, it maybe that's these sort of events have to happen on this global stage to get their attention there's one that i wrote about which just shocks me to this day but um nobody seems to care it didn't get much attention was in january of 2019 when the governor of rhode island declared a state of emergency because uh, they had to cut off a bunch of natural gas customers and the problem there was that it was a cold snap and the demand was so high that it depressurized the natural gas system. And they simply, they had to cut off 7,000 customers to, to safeguard the system. The natural gas system can't be depressurized that much. And the governor actually declared a state of emergency and went on Twitter and went on the news and said, like, take people in. Their people are going to die tonight if you don't take them in. Churches, take people in. Whoever, whoever has heat, take people in. This is an emergency. We're not kidding. And then as soon as the cold snap was over and the natural gas supplies went back to normal, no, nobody cared. And it never made the news outside of that localized um, area. And it, it was a, close to a catastrophe. And it seems like maybe that's what's going to have to happen at some point is we're going to have to have something really ugly happen. This, this Saudi thing was big in terms of numbers and it got people's attention, but there was no loss of life and no, no long-term repercussions other than a jump in oil prices. So that, that, that's the sad part. Um, there's these realities that uh, groups refuse to acknowledge about our dependence and our reliance on fossil fuels and how hard it is to get away from them, and they just simply can't hear anything. Well, that's a great segue leading into your book, and I really enjoyed it, uh, The End of Fossil Fuel Insanity. For those of you who haven't read it, I encourage you to do so because it manages to take the incredibly polarizing debate over modern fossil fuel usage in an environment of climate alarmism and look at it from an unbiased and pragmatic perspective. So I guess the book's been out for how long? was out in January, so eight, nine months. Okay, so not that long. <clears throat> How do you think things have changed, if any, uh, in terms of public sentiment and understanding in general? Um, are the two sides any closer, or are we further apart? Or It, it, is, it is hard to say. I, I don't, the, the polls are very interesting. It, there's different ways to look at where, where we're at in terms of the discussion. And if you look at the media, if you just pick up the news stories, you will see um, consistent messaging because the, the, the group, special interest groups, the activists, know how to dominate the mainstream, the narrative. And you will hear that we have 12 years to live and all of this, uh, the, the crazy accusations. And, and you'll also hear them trying to make a positive story out of it, saying we're on our way away from fossil fuels. The public doesn't support it. The public only wants green energy. And 
there, there's these themes that just keep getting hammered out that there's this relentless demand um, for green energy that we're moving uh, away from fossil fuels. But then, then you'll see polls come out that will just totally um, counteract that or some economic data on the polling side, both CBC in Canada and Reuters in the U.S. did some polls a couple of months ago. They asked Canadians, um, first of all, are you worried about climate change? And the majority of them said, yes, we are. It's, it's important. They said, okay, well, what are you willing to do about it? Half the people weren't willing to spend more than $100 a year to combat climate change. Something like uh, 90% of the, the Canadian people polled, and this is by the CBC, we're willing to spend less than $500, to, which means that's $40 a month, which is less than their phone bill. So, so, so people say one thing and then they, they act differently as consumers. And, and it was, that was mirrored pretty much exactly the same in the United States. The, the amount of people, the, majority, the amount of money that the majority of people were willing to spend to combat climate change was just shockingly low relative to what they were saying as, as far as it was an emergency. So you have this, this, incongruity here which is you're asking where we are at the debate and it's that's why it's hard to tell like the or a national poll will say are you in, in favor of pipeline development and a lot of canadians will say yes i think it's majority in most almost every jurisdiction says yes we are in favor of it because we need a balance um but if you if you flip on the news you hear the opposite so it, the one thing i've been studying lately is electric vehicles too and there's this uh, a dominant theme coming out that they're taking over and that it's just a, a matter of time before internal combustion engines are done for. And, and just nothing could be further from the truth. If you look at the actual sales statistics, they've been falling, if anything. And, and if you exclude Tesla, which is a, uh, the, Tesla is the apple of, of the automobile, automobile industry, but there's, uh, but they're not dominant like, like Apple. They're, 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 I mean, they're, they dominate the sales numbers, but they're, it's not an earth-shaking change it's for the people that are enthusiasts or that want that cool factor. They buy a Tesla. The rest of the world isn't buying any, anything else. The Nissan Leaf has been around for a decade, and its sales are 10% of projections or something like that. And the, the hype new models, Audi came out with a new model, e-tron, which was uh, shown in some uh, Marvel movies. It was highlighted, and it's been hyped to death. And they, in the first, first month, it sold a couple hundred in the United States, uh, second month it sold like 800, and then that's just dwindled off down to like 200 now over over like a seven month span. Jaguar came up with a model which was actually quite cheap for an electric vehicle called the I-Pace. Its sales peaked same thing around maybe a thousand, and then it's just been falling off ever since. That's over the past eight months. It, China it, China has been the the bellwether for the the um, electric vehicle revolution. Everybody points to them and says, "Look how China is converting to electric vehicles." And they had been because the government was forcing them to. They were they were not allowing new vehicle licenses for internal combustion engines purchases. It was only for electric vehicles. So that's kind of a pretty strong incentive. And then, <clears throat> excuse me, they started cutting back those incentives in June, and electric vehicle sales have just plummeted in the past two months. In July, they're down seven or eight percent. In August, they're down sixteen percent. So it's there's these myths that that um, and and the people that are creating them. I think there's a legitimate core that is truly worried about the globe's future, and and I think it's it's legitimate to deal with that aspect of it. Um, but everybody just needs to calm down and and and. But we can't even get a, a a footing. We don't even know where to stand in this whole debate because it's been so muddied. And if it was purely climate, that would be one thing to discussion, but it's climate is now involved with the um, social engineering aspect. It's become political. 
And, and as soon as you have politics, then everybody heads to their opposing camps and nothing happens. And so I don't think the debate is advanced. We're probably maybe further back just because it's become more strident. But the realities are still there. Well, you mentioned EVs, and it's incredible. On the radio this morning, um, they were saying, and, you know, I'll get to the question here, but on the radio this morning, you know, they're rolling through their quick hit segments, right, between traffic and between business and this and that, and one of them was uh, EVs. And they throw out some stats. EVs are growing incredibly, and, and then, uh, you know, the... Uh, the host of the show said he was in a certain part of the province and saw that uh, they they put in some um, charging stations, you know, and so it's coming and and uh, you know get ready, it's already here. Kind of was the impression that somebody took away, and then boom, they're on to uh, the entertainment segment, right, mm -hmm. and the movie reviews. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I guess the question is. How is the media influencing our perceptions? Because you say, you know, when you look at actual sales, the, it, the numbers don't add up. Yet when they you don't. talk, when you hear some of the news reports on EVs, it's we're already there. People are done with uh, internal combustion. So I think that'll sort itself out over a bit of time here because what they're doing is they're looking at, um, say, July's data is out. I think August is now, but let's just say July of 2019. And they compare that to July of 2018, which was before, and it's all dominated by Tesla outside of the Chinese market, which has a few of their own little smaller um, um, manufacturers. But the electric vehicle industry is dominated by Tesla. Last July, June, July, they didn't have any um, Model 3 sales, which is their cheapest model, their high volume model. So if you compare July 2019 over July 2018, they're, they're, it shows massive growth because of this new vehicle. But that, that's one new vehicle, and that they did lunge out of the gate. They, they said they had 400,000 pre-orders for the vehicle, um, and but sales of that have flatlined too. There is, they've been flat for most of the year in the United States anyways. They're growing where they're introduced in a new country, which is skews the statistics as well. And they, get, they just got introduced to, to uh, Britain in, um, I think it was the third quarter of this year, second or third quarter. So there's a big leap in sales, they call it. But it's the pre-orders that have been existing. But like in the United States... Uh, Model 3 sales are flatlined around 13,000, 15,000 vehicles with a spike in June, which is ironic because they cranked up supplies to meet the, the end of quarter target numbers. So it, it's a bit of smoke and mirrors. And over time, this will uh, people will start uh, seeing what's really happening. But for now, it's, you just can't fight that tide. Well, and I think what's interesting to me is the way they present it. As I say, the, the delivery of the message would have, I think the response from people is, oh, well, everybody else has already bought one, so I guess I don't need to trade mine in because we're, we're there. Maybe that's right? what it is. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Mm -hmm. So we talked a little bit about the debate existing at the extremes. And, you know, I feel, I mean, our Oil Respect campaign, we were across the country a couple times. It seems to me based on conversations I've had, the middle is filled with people looking for responsible development and a commitment to environmental stewardship. Uh, would you agree? And if so, how do you see this theory playing out in the upcoming federal election? Yeah, I, I, I think that's absolutely right. I think the majority of people, there's extremes um, and, and there are, yeah, there, on, on both sides are people who can't hear anything but their own echo chamber. 
And then the majority of the people in the middle will just say, I, I just want to make sense of this. I want to understand, which is why I wrote my book. And on the theme it did, I tried to break, deconstruct the arguments, how each side got to where they are and deconstruct or put in a, a way that people can understand the magnitude of, of our reliance on, on fossil fuels. And I think that there seems to be an appetite for people. There, there's a lot of the population which is just disinterested. They're just tired and they want to go home and put their feet up and watch a football game. And they're, or they're worried about their kids' grades or they're worried about going on a vacation or they're worried about their mortgage payments or their car payments or school student loans or whatever. And, and that's their uh, predominant worries. And I think that shows up in polls too, that economic issues are, are far more important to the general population than climate change. So I, I think that um, climate change has been pushed into the narrative of this election, just like every other election around the world, and they're forced to take a position on it. And, and we see the Greens and the NDPs, which are making promises, which are typical of parties that have never governed anything. It's like armchair quarterbacks. You can say anything you want if you're not responsible. That's why it's such a cliche to call someone an armchair quarterback because they sound like they have all the answers, but they've never done it, so they don't know. And you actually get out there and you do it. And that's what I challenge people with who, who talk about this. I said, have you ever built anything? Have you ever like constructed infrastructure? Have you built a well site? Have you, have you tried to build anything where there's permitting required and regulations, and, and especially if people are against it and they're trying to derail it? And this happens with solar. It happens with wind. It happens with everything. There, there are projects in the. There is a, um, there is a website. I think it's been taken down. It's called Project No Project in the United States. But it was valuable and it listed. It might, it might have popped up as something else. But I, um, it had a catalog of all uh, pro major projects in the United States which were being held up by um, people objecting to them, and it was massive. It was 170 projects worth billions, tens of billions of dollars. Wind farms, solar farms. Um, irrigation projects, dams, there's always somebody fighting something. So when someone comes, when these politicians come along and say, we're going to convert our entire infrastructure to something else, it, it's, it's, there's just no, no basis for reality for it. Even California, which is like the mecca for green energy, their, their green governor um, canceled the high-speed rail project, which is part of the climate fighting initiative. They're going to have a high-speed rail between Los Angeles and San Francisco. And he, he vetoed that project when the bill, the estimated bill came to $77 billion. And, and the, he, he just said that's just outrageous. At the same time, you have Democrats in the United States who are running for office saying, we're going to um, make all of the U.S. run on high-speed rail. And it's, but you think that one, like one connection between two cities got shot down and, and you're going to convert a country of 350 million people to, to operate with that as a fun, as a backbone of their their transportation infrastructure, there's just zero thought that's actually gone into actually doing this, and that can be as a result of just the academic um, underpinnings of, of what these people do for their policies. They just they have a team of economists and they say, well, it should cost this much to do something, but that's not the same thing as actually doing it. Um, in Canada, we have ample evidence of that with pipelines, right? What should it cost to build Trans Mountain versus what it's going to cost if it ever gets built? So interesting because you would think that in this day and age, our modern ability to access information would improve our energy literacy. But I, based on what you've seen, based on my experience, I don't think that it has. Can you? Well, I don't think it has either. And I, I think that I think part of the, the biggest problem with the 
the lack of energy literacy is that if, if people if uh, people want to learn more about energy and you just go to the common news source, the, the opponents of fossil fuels have dominated that. So you're going to get a, a view there. And I think for the average person, they can smell a rat. They read some of this stuff and they go, that just can't be right. And I, I don't think anyone, uh, the 10% of people that love Elizabeth May's thought processes or, or sings, um, and they believe that they can convert an economy in 10 or 15 years, they will believe that and they won't hear anything else. And for the average person to go to their to the web and find this out, they they can um, they'll, they'll be met first with this wall. And if they if they go behind that and they'll find statistics, say they say they want to find out how how reliant really are we on on fossil fuels. If you type that into Google, you'll come up with a bunch of stuff that's anti-fossil fuels. But you also find some statistics that will say we consume 100 million barrels a day, but does that mean anything to the average person? Like, I don't think they can conceptualize that. Is that is that a big number? Or is that did it used to be 200 or did it used to be 50? At what rate of change is that? And 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 then they'll read that um, that Canada has a, a 180 billion barrels of oil in the oil sands, and they'll think, well, that's obviously enough forever. Um, but then they'll read before they'll re get to that statistic, they'll read how it's a carbon bomb that's going to blow up the world. So it's so I think the I think the average person, which is I've tried to structure my blog this way. Initially, it was just aimed straight solely for people that um, they didn't know anything about energy. When I first started it, I had a friend in the United States, and I said, uh, "What is the um, what are your thoughts on energy?" I'm just trying to write something for people that don't understand energy. This is a person that lives um, far, far away from energy, and I said, "What do you know about energy?" And she said that. Um, well, I, I know two things, that, that we're getting screwed at the pumps by the price of gas, and I know that fracking is bad for the environment. And that's that was it. That was the sum basis of knowledge. Just lean from mainstream, like somebody that's not interested in statistics or anything. That was just the the message that was conveyed by the media stream, So, which are kind of very interesting data points. Um, one is concerned with the price of fuel and that it's too high, and the other one was a fracking message, which is, had been... Um, uh, perpetrated by people who are trying to kill fracking without any substance to it at all or any context. It, if I would have pushed it, it further and said, "You understand what fracking is?" I'm sure I would have got like a blank stare. Um, but those are the that's the the, the um, extent of energy knowledge, and and it's it's part of the problem is that people just take everything for granted as well. You don't you don't in winter whether you're in Vancouver or Montreal or you don't walk into a building and just be grateful that it's heated. You just walk into a building and it's warm and that's just it, right? That's your expectation. And if one day you walked into a department store or a government building or something and it was unheated, you'd be stunned because that, that, that's not how the, our world works. So so the, that, that level of the petroleum industry, is, is it sounds terrible and I, I would get attacked for saying this, but they're too good and too reliable of a provider that people just take it for granted. And they think that they can attack them uh, relentlessly and that they'll keep doing it anyways. And we saw this with the Enbridge uh, pipeline outage to Vancouver last fall, almost a year ago now. So a pipeline by Prince George blew up one of two and it limited gas flows into Vancouver. And there was there was near, there were some sweaty officials there They and they told people that, uh, um, you know, quite nervous, they said there, there will be Service will be cut to some institutions. BC Institute of Technology uh, told students they better come to class with uh, mitts and gloves and coats because there's not going to be any heat in the classrooms. 
Enbridge scrambled and got that line up and running in five days, and then they both had to operate at 80% capacity for all, but service was restored to the lower mainland. But if that, if that outage had persisted, or if both of those pipelines had been blown up, it would have been a totally different story. But, but people didn't even learn anything from that. They, they went back to, they might have had a bit of respect for natural gas for the days that it was out, but then uh, within a day or two after, then that was all gone and the, the narrative came back that we have to get off fossil fuels. It, it, it's astonishing to watch, but there's these, a book was written long ago about the, the, the mass delusion of crowds. I can't remember what it is. I got to go read it again. But this happens over and over and over again. We've seen it, the dot-com boom, everyone lost their mind. Y2K, everyone lost their mind. And, and these things... It, w what happened the day after Y2K, or two days later, it was like an, it was like it never happened. But three <laughs> days before, people were, were hoarding water, right? Yes, I know some people who actually did that. <laughs> yeah, so so this is, it's in some sense, it's human nature. And, and until, as, as long as the petroleum sector is as good, does as good a job as it does of heating and feeding everyone, and it, it does feed everyone, there's, there's a superstore or supermarket would be empty without fossil fuels. There's just no way that renewable energy can fill that super uh, supermarket. Uh, and most of the things, you, if you look in there where they come from, like you realize that there's very little that's actually sustained or produced locally anyways, never mind sustainably. It seems as though um, if you're out searching for energy every day, you're gonna have a much better understanding of... of uh, you absolutely would, and you would value it if you were getting wood every day for to heat your home, you would value wood, but exactly. So your energy literacy rate goes up uh, as your standard of living goes down, and vice versa. It would almost seem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in the book, you weren't overly kind to the communication efforts of big oil. Um, what can we do as an industry to do better in terms of telling our story? I mean, we. It's a big paradigm shift, but I think. You, you, you gave the answer in the question almost there. We just have to start telling a story. Like we, we, we have to, we, for so long we've been, it's, a, it's almost like it's an engineering mentality, not to knock engineers, but they're easy to pick on. They're, um, you, if you throw some numbers out there, it'll be all okay because people will, will get it. And if you say, do you realize how reliant you are on fossil fuels? Do you realize that your lipstick comes from fossil fuels and everything else? And, and the, the, a lot of people just tend to get annoyed by that because they don't, they don't, they, they, they have trouble. They think it's just uh, the provider of that product just trying to sell them on that product. So there's, we just have to find a, a way to speak to people in a way that they understand that. And, and companies have tried before. I think it's a, it's a real cultural issue because it's been going on for so long that they're just like totally unable to relate to the public on those terms. When I was unkind to them, like you, you mentioned there, I used to work for a pipeline company and, and I had a couple of examples that I give to people where we, before the floods of 2013, where the, um, the company did, went way out of their way and they, they did a masterful job of preparing for the flood by shutting in pipeline segments that might be susceptible to erosion, purging them of oil. And if, if, if they got washed out, they knew exactly where all the trouble spots could be on, on river crossings and they're ready for the flood. And, and then, so I was quite excited to tell a story because we're publicizing what we're doing to, to successfully manage through the flood and, and I wasn't allowed to talk about it. We just said, we don't talk about our internal process externally. And we wound up putting out a one-line statement about how uh, we, we were safely handling the flood situation or something. 
with minimal disruptions. And, and there, there are more and more and more instances like that where you have a chance to tell the story. If, if people have no confidence in pipelines, you have to get out there and you have to show them something that's relatable to them. You have to show them. I always said that when a pipeline company sends a smart pig down their pipe and they find um, imperfections and they can find astonishingly small imperfections mix in the coating on the outside or any hint of corrosion or whatever. And if they dig up that piece of pipe, they should take that on tour and they should be showing people this is what's unacceptable to us. If you have a piece of pipe that's uh, three quarters of a centimeter thick and it has a, a nick in it that's two millimeters thick and you call it unacceptable, you should be showing that to people because people have a, a perception that uh, pipelines are a 50 year old pipeline is so rusty and full of holes that it would look like an old washing machine pulled out of a lake but it's nothing could be further from the truth so but we, we have to get in front of these things and actually try and relate to people in a way that will mean something to them. If, if they're on this line if somebody's on a, on a right away or near one and they're fighting a pipeline or, or we should be talking to them saying can we just show you what our operations actually look like instead of saying trust us it's safe which is the route that hasn't been working. We can, you throw out a statistic that says, well, we, we move almost all of our products safely and they go, well, what does that mean? Then if you put a number on it and you say, we move 99.9% .9 of our, our products safely, and I, this is a true example, the focus groups would say, well, they split into two camps and they would say, that's nonsense, I don't believe you. And the other group would say, wait a minute, you, so you, you, you call 0.01% spills acceptable? Like on a million barrel a day pipeline, that's 10,000 barrels a day or whatever. You call, you, you say that's acceptable. And so, but, but that's the message that came out anyways. It was like, we moved 99.98%. And, and so it's a mindset that we have to just think of how to actually relate to people more so. And have to show more, more they were actually interested in um, a, publicly show that we're interested in green initiatives and that sort of thing too. I just, on the way over here, I ran into a guy who just started a, a, an ex-service man, an oil patch service guy, and he started a company recycling plastics because it looked like a good opportunity. It's a fantastic business. He's, um, he's growing it rapidly and he's, and he's found a solution for, for old frack liners. And it's, it's a great story and it's, but nobody knows that. And it's, there's people, uh, the politicians, Elizabeth May and, and, Jagmeet Singh are saying we have to do something, or well, we are doing something, but they don't. Nobody knows that, or we get drowned out. So we have to find a way to compete in that arena, so that people can actually hear it. Yeah, it's a good story to tell. It's an easy one to tell too. It, it uh, it's unfortunate because a lot of uh, the, the country's leaders, um, specifically, uh, gravitate towards the other stories right now, which uh, they do. Is the, tough. There's one funny thing about. It's not funny. It's interesting, though, is, is that leaders, Trudeau got pilloried by the, by the environmentalists in, the, in Britain and everywhere for supporting a pipeline, for buying a pipeline. And they, they, they've turned their back on him, like, you're not an environmentalist. And that's an interesting, very interesting phenomenon because it happens whenever someone is put in charge. You see how Rachel Notley went from being against pipelines to being a very rabid supporter of pipelines. You saw John Horgan and Buddy Weaver in BC, when they put their coalition together, the, the Green Weaver was saying, over my dead body, will we build that LNG terminal? Well, they're building the LNG terminal. You see a Trudeau who put Mr. Butts in power, the world wildlife guy, and they, they had a campaign that was very clearly against fossil fuels. 
and all of a sudden he's buying a pipeline because so all the the things that these have all have in common is when these people actually are handed the keys and said okay you run the show now they realize oh well, we, we can't live without them and this I, I i believe that the same would be true for the greens and the ndps if they ever got elected i hope not but if they ever did there those plans of theirs would be in the dumpster in 30 seconds because they would realize that okay well that's not going to work but then they would just be backpedaling on promises, which is nothing new to politics. So, Well, getting back to pipelines here, and uh, to be respectful of your time, we'll, we'll try to wrap it up, but it's always such a good conversation. Um, recently, you wrote an article on pipelines that didn't have to do with the lack thereof, but rather the role pipeline companies play with respect to existing infrastructure. Can you explain to us the current situation surrounding the allocation of existing pipeline space and how it impacts the business? Sure. So that's, this is all unfortunately caused by our lack of market access again. This is something that doesn't plague any other jurisdiction in the world that I'm aware of. Maybe some parts of Europe, but I don't think so. Um, so and they're, they're quite different uh, circumstances. And natural gas was ahead of oil for, uh, on, this, on this issue. So in the natural, the natural gas world, to deal with um, too much supply and not enough pipe, the natural gas um, transporters came up with a mechanism, mainly, mainly it was TransCanada or TC Energy or whatever they are now, um, and they, they came up with a, a methodology to move gas that suited their needs and they thought would work well and it wound up driving the price of natural gas right into the ground. And the repercussions of that were, are starting to be felt is with the most clear example is Trident Exploration. Uh, they produced, uh, I think it was um, uh, 50 million cubic feet a day of natural gas or something like that. And uh, a shallow gas producer, and they shut their doors in May. And they, they, they didn't go bankrupt at the time. They shut their doors, they laid off their employees, they shut in their production, they handed the keys to the regulator and said, our revenue that we're getting on our natural gas doesn't come close to covering our expenses it barely covers our property taxes never mind everything else and they said we can't deal with this anymore because we can't get our gas out of the province because this price has been pounded so low by the mechanics of getting of, of getting the gas out of it so the the, the pipeline operator trans canada wanted everyone to be uh, uh, buy firm service long haul firm service for an extended period to a dedicated market and for like 10 years or something like that and companies just can't do that a lot of them can't commit to the, the space or the commitment. And so they were, their companies are being forced out of business because the price has been pushed so low by these, this mechanism to try and manage the shortage of space. And so where this kind of is blowing up on the oil side now is that there's on the oil side, there's always been too much oil. There has been for a long time. Um, and so they had an apportionment issue where you would nominate how much oil you wanted to move and then they would cut everyone back proportionately. And Enbridge now wants to move it to a, a firm service contract where you buy your space and, you, and then you're guaranteed that space forever. You don't have to worry about apportionment anymore. And then the effect that would have, which they, they are dispute, but it would squeeze out smaller producers who can't commit to long-term, uh, sign a 15-year delivery contract or 20 years or whatever it is, 10 years even. In this environment, it's like it's very dangerous. Who would do that? Like who knows what's going to happen in three years? Maybe legislation will be passed. Maybe the Greens get in power. Like you can't sign those sorts of things unless you're the biggest customers. And even the biggest customers didn't like this because there's opportunities for refiners to game the system. If you can back oil up in Alberta and drive the price down, 
you, then you can buy it cheaply and feed your refinery in the U.S. and you make them mint. And so that's kind of what's been happening with some parties. So that, that's kind of what's blown up here with the pipelines is that, it, and the, the pipelines, are they are trying to do their best to run their systems and they're trying to keep their pipe full and make everybody happy and you can't make everybody happy. But there's there's really, really big consequences to these actions like with uh, on the gas side where companies have been forced out of business that um, trident incident alone meant that for over 4,000 well borers went to the orphan well fund which is now a burden for you and I and everyone else in the province because we now have to put the bill for abandoning them and you can't sell this stuff who's going to buy it when, when it's uh, the revenue is less than the costs so so that that's uh, so the, the gas side is actually more critical. The oil side has a bit of a floor because it can, oil can always move by rail if necessary. So there's there is an outlet, but it means a severe discount to move it by rail, and it's less flexible, flexible, and other uh, less preferential things, including the environmental side, where it just makes no sense to put oil on rail compared to a pipeline. But that's what we're forced to do. So. So that, that's the pipeline issue is that we're it's just exacerbating a problem that, that making it harder for the survival, especially of smaller companies. Well, and I think that something that gets lost in all of this a lot of times, um, certainly you hear people who are opponents of big oil saying that all the fat cats are taking the resources and, and making tons of profit uh, off of them, which they are, but at the same time, so are we. As Canadians, we are owners of the resource. As Albertans, we are owners of the resource. So, um, you know, and if, is there a role for regulators or government in this space? Uh, of course, adhering to free market principles. Um, but is there a role for them that can help make things maybe a little bit more efficient for businesses and, and taxpayers? Yeah, I, th- I think so. I think even for all but the most ardent free market supporters would have to say that there is a role for government. I mean, if you look at the pipeline issue itself, that that's clearly beyond the ability of um, private industry to fix that. We, we need governments. We, we, we I've heard proposals for a cross-Canada uh, utilities corridor, which is something only governments could do, obviously, and that makes complete sense, and it, and it might make life better for everyone um, if we could get to something like that. The Pipeline infrastructure, I read an interesting book by Dave Eager over the summer where he chronicles the history of petroleum development in Alberta. It's always been about politics. That In the 50s and 60s, Alberta did not want pipelines built. They, want, they didn't know how big the reserves were and they wanted to ensure that they had their own supply. The government of BC insisted that Alberta build the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Irony is pretty big there. And the government of Canada insisted that the uh, main line out out uh, east be built from Alberta, both for gas and oil. So it, it's it's always been those bigger pieces of infrastructure. You, you can't you can't be totally free market driven in that because it's too political. To it, it, unfortunately, we have to rely on politicians because it's just part of the landscape there, and and that gets multiplied as soon as you cross the border with the pipeline because then it's federally regulated, and if you cross an international one, then we know what, what the problems are there. So so there's definitely a rule. So. We just need a, a government that would, um, and ironically, Trudeau seemed to show little glimpses of understanding this when he bought the pipeline, because it's it, at first I thought, well, maybe this is an indication that he truly understands what's at stake here and what's required to make things work successfully. But then I, I but I think he's just, a, I think that was just for show probably more than anything. It was a sacrifice that he was willing to make 
to, um, to, to prevent it from going away and preventing an open rebellion in Alberta. Um, and whether he actually intends to build the Trans Mountain, I really kind of, I, I'm not convinced that he does the expansion. Well, that makes this election in October uh, that much more important for our industry anyway. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it does. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Terry, for your time. We really appreciate you coming in. That's going to do it for September's edition of the WeldCore Supply CAODC podcast. WeldCore is proud to support those who are working hard to keep our country running. Proud to be a Canadian-owned welding filler metal supply company in a country that has the highest environmental and human rights standards in the world. WeldCore supports ethical oil. WeldCore supports the Canadian oil and gas sector. The world needs ethical oil. The world needs Canadian oil. Let WeldCore Supplies help you make that happen. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. That was our second uh, podcast. We will be coming back online in October, so stay tuned. And uh, have a great day.